Chapter Twenty One of Book One of Les Miserables, Volume Five by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Les Miserables, Volume Five by Victor Hugo, translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book One: The War Between Four Walls. Chapter Twenty One. The heroes. All at once the drum beat the charge. The attack was a hurricane. On the evening before, in the darkness, the barricade had been approached silently as by a boa. Now, in broad daylight, in that widening street, surprise was decidedly impossible. Rude force had, moreover, been unmasked. And the cannon had begun the roar. The army hurled itself on the barricade. Fury now became skill. A powerful detachment of infantry of the line, broken at regular intervals by the National Guard and the Municipal Guard on foot, and supported by serried masses which could be heard though not seen, debauched into the street at a run. With drums beating, trumpets braying, bayonets leveled, the sappers at their head, and imperturbable under the projectiles, charged straight for the barricade with the weight of a brazen beam against a wall. The wall held firm. The insurgents fired impetuously. The barricade, once scaled, had a mane of lightning flashes. The assault was so furious that for one moment it was inundated with assailants, but it shook off the soldiers as a lion shakes off the dogs, and it was only covered with besiegers as the cliff is covered with foam to reappear a moment later, beetling, black and formidable. The column, forced to retreat, remained massed in the street, unprotected but terrible, and replied to the redoubt with a terrible discharge of musketry. Anyone who has seen fireworks will recall the sheaf formed of interlacing lightning, which is called a bouquet. Let the reader picture to himself this bouquet, no longer vertical but horizontal, bearing a bullet, buckshot, or biscayne, at the tip of each one of its jets of flames, and picking off dead men one or another from its clusters of lightning. The barricade was underneath it. On both sides the resolution was equal. The bravery exhibited there was almost barbarous, and was complicated with a sort of heroic ferocity which began by the sacrifice of self. This was the epoch when a National Guardman fought like the Zouave, the troop wished to make an end of it. Insurrection was desirous of fighting. The acceptance of the death agony in the flower of youth and in the flush of health turns intrepidity into frenzy. In this fray, each one underwent the broadening growth of the death hour. The street was strewn with corpses. The barricade had Enjolras as one of its extremities and Marius at the other. Enjolras, who carried the whole barricade in his head, reserved and sheltered himself. Three soldiers fell, one after the other, under his embrasure, without having even seen him. Marius fought unprotected. He made himself a target. He stood with more than half his body above the breastworks. There is no more violent prodigal than the avaricious man who takes the bit in his teeth. There is no more man more terrible in action than a dreamer. Marius was formidable and pensive. In battle he was as in a dream. One would have pronounced him a phantom engaged in firing a gun. 
The insurgents' cartridges were giving out, but not their sarcasm. In this whirlwind of the sepulchre in which they stood, they laughed. Curfeyrac was bareheaded. What have you done with your hat? Bousset asked him. Curfeyrac replied, They have taken it away from me with the cannonballs, or they uttered haughty comments. Can anyone understand, exclaimed Freire bitterly, those men, and he cited names, well-known names, even celebrated names, some belonging to the old army, who had promised to join us, and taken an oath to aid us, who had pledged their honor to it, and who are our generals, and who abandoned us? And Cumferer restricted himself to replying with a grave smile, There are people who observe the rules of honor, as one observed the stars from a great distance. The interior of the barricade was so strewn with torn cartridges that one would have said there had been a snowstorm. The assailants had numbers in their favor, the insurgents had position. They were at the top of the wall. They thundered point-blank upon the soldiers tripping over the dead and wounded and entangled in the escarpment. This barricade, constructed as it was, and admirably buttressed, was really one of those situations where a handful of men hold a legion in check. Nevertheless, the attacking column, constantly recruited and enlarged under the shower of bullets, drew inexorably clearer, and now, little by little, step by step, but surely, the army closed in around the barricade as the vice grasped the wine-press. One assault followed another. The horror of the situation kept increasing. Then there burst forth on that heap of paving stones in that Rue de la Chanvrerie, the battle worthy of the Wall of Troy. These haggard, ragged, exhausted men, who had nothing to eat for four and twenty hours, who had not slept, who had but a few more rounds to fire, who were fumbling in their pockets which had been emptied of cartridges, nearly all of whom were wounded, with head or arm bandaged with black and blood-stained linen, with holes in their clothes from which the blood trickled, and who were hardly armed with poor guns and notched swords, became titans. The barricade was ten times attacked, approached, assailed, scaled, and never captured. In order to form an idea of this struggle, it is necessary to imagine fire set to a throng of terrible courages, and then to gaze at the conflagration. It was not a combat. It was the interior of a furnace. Their mouths breathed the flame. Their countenance were extraordinary. The human form seemed impossible there. The combatants flamed forth there, and it was formidable to behold the going and the comings in that red glow of those salamanders of the fray. The successive and the simultaneous scenes of this grand slaughter we renounce all attempts at depicting. The epic alone has the right to fill twelve thousand verses with a battle. One would have pronounced this that hell of Brahmanism, the most redoubtable of the seventeen abysses, which the Veda calls the forest of the swords. They fought hand to hand, foot to foot, with pistol shots, with blows of the sword, with their fists, at a distance, close at hand, from above, from below, from everywhere, from the roofs of the houses, from the windows of the wine shops, from the cellar windows, whither some had crawled, they were one against sixty. The façade of the Corinth, half demolished, was hideous. The window, tattooed with grape-shot, 
had lost glass and frame and was nothing now but a shapeless hole, tumultuously blocked with paving stones. Bousset was killed, Foilly was killed, Courfeyrac was killed, Combeferre, transfixed by three bows from a bayonet in the breast at the moment when he was lifting up a wounded soldier, had only time to glance to heaven when he expired. Marius, still fighting, was so riddled with wounds, particularly in the head, that his countenance disappeared beneath the blood, and one would have said that his face was covered with a red handkerchief. Enjolras alone was not struck. When he no longer had any weapon, he reached out his hands to the right and left, and an insurgent thrust some arm or other into his fist. All he had left was the sumps of four swords, one more than Francois at Marion. Homer says, Diomedes cuts the throat of Axilus, son of Tuthranus, who dwelt in happy Arisba. Eurylus, son of Mesisteus, exterminates Dresos and Opheltios, Esipius and that Padeus, whom the Naiad, a Barbarea, born to the blameless Bucolion, Ulysses overthrows Pidaites of the Percoseus, Antilochius, Ablaris, Polypades, Astalus, Polydamus, Otos of Silene, and Toser Aretion. Megantheos dies under the blows of Eurypylus's pike. Agamemnon, king of the heroes, flings to earth Alados, born in the rocky city which is loved by the surrounding river Santnois. In our old poems of exploits, a Plandian attacks of the giant Marcos Swantabor with a cobbler's shoulder stick of fire, and the latter defends himself by stoning the hero which towers he plucks up by the roots. Our ancient mural frescoes shows us the two dukes of Britannia and Bourbon, armed, emblazoned, and crested in warlike guise, on horseback and approaching each other, their battle-axes in hand, masked with iron, gloved with iron, booted with iron, one caparisoned in ermine, the other draped in azure, Bretagne with his lion between two horns of his crown, Bourbon helmeted in a monster fleur-de-lis on his visor. But in order to be superb, it is not necessary to wear like Yevon, the Duke of Marion, to have in the fist like Esplandian a living flame, or like Phyles, father of Polydamus, to have brought back from Ephyra a good suit of mail, a present from the king of men, Euphides, it suffices to give one's life for conviction or loyalty. This ingenious little soldier, yesterday a peasant of Bosse or Limousin, who prowls with a clasp knife by his side around the children's nurses in the Luxembourg garden, this pale young student bent over a piece of anatomy or a book, a blonde youth who shaves his beard with scissors, take both of them, breathe upon them with a breath of duty, place them face to face in the coiffeur Boncheret, or in the blind alley planche Meble, and let one fight for his flag or the other for his ideal, and let both of them imagine that they are fighting for their country, the struggle will be colossal, and the shadow which this raw recruit and this sawbones in conflict will produce in that grand epic field where the human is striving will equal the shadow cast by Megarion, king of Lycia, tiger-filled, 
crushing in his embrace the immense body of Ajax equal to the gods. End of Book 1, Chapter 21